On today's episode of the Hot Nerd Podcast, we're going to talk about the output, the actual output of learning teams. www.thehotnerd.com for fundamentals, learning teams, support, and so much more. Send us an email, thehotnerd at gmail.com, and be sure to follow along with us on all things social media at thehotnerd or at Sam Goodman. Welcome to today's episode. Hello, howdy, everybody. Sam Goodman, the Hot Nerd Podcast, the Hot Nerd LLC. I got my little, you know what that is? You know what that is? I've got my cold brew in my hand. I've been doing this thing, and I, it's, it can't be good for me, I guess, but I've been doing this thing. I'm going to confess, okay? Here's my here's my confession time for you. Uh, I was going to say first thing in the morning because it's first thing in the morning for me. I don't, I don't know when you're listening to this thing, but uh, you can imagine yourself here first thing in the morning, confessions with Sam. Uh, but I've been ordering two Trenta cold brews every day. And I say ordering because uh, I tend to DoorDash because I travel a bunch. That's one of my uh, few travel pro tips that I will give you uh, is to make sure that you DoorDash your stuff. I'm seriously, DoorDash your stuff. So when I get to a hotel room, one of the first things I do is I add in the address and my room number of the hotel and to DoorDash because most hotels allow for to the room delivery. So whenever I get done, so wherever I'm at, I'm usually out on a location in a warehouse at a corporate something, you know, one of those tower things in that fancy pants executive conference room, or I'm out on a shop floor. My work takes me into all the nooks and crannies of organizations, which is a lot of fun. But whenever I'm done doing that, about the time I get to my rental car or whatever mode of transportation I am using for that particular trip, uh, when I'm about 20 minutes out, I'm placing a DoorDash order. And I'm usually ordering lunch and dinner because I don't really eat much during the day. I know it looks like I eat all the time, but I promise you I don't. Uh, I usually eat in the evenings, so I'll order like dinner or lunch and dinner for that night. And then once I get back to the hotel, I will pre-order, schedule my coffee delivery for like as early as they allow it to be delivered. That almost always works. So most Starbucks in particular can usually get coffee delivered to the room door by like five something a.m., which gives me plenty of time to have a nice coffee and get out the door. But I've been doing two. I, I, I don't know. I, I probably need to cut back, I guess is what I'm saying. But but it started here. <laughs> it started here. And this kind of ties into a little bit of like, you know, the situation, the context, the stuff that surrounds us tends to drive our behavior uh, quite a bit. So if you use DoorDash, you know, I've got like the Dash Pass thing and all that different stuff. But if I order one coffee, it's wildly expensive. If I order two coffees, two gigantic cold brews, instead of being like some whatever ridiculous price it is, it ends up being like two bucks more. So basically, I get the second coffee, at least in my brain, I'm like, I get the second coffee for like $2. I might as well order two. I don't have to drink them all. I mean, if I drink like half the other one or just have it to sip on after the first one's gone, that's okay. That's definitely still worth it. And then I end up chugging uh, both, <laughs> both of the coffees. And uh, I don't know. I haven't noticed any deleterious health effects. I haven't noticed anything, you know, wild. And I, I don't know. I think that probably if I'm not ordering the cold brew, I'm using my little Nespresso machine or I'm drinking hotel coffee. Yeah, I'm probably drinking just as much caffeine. So I don't know. I I, I don't know. So I, I, out of this long rambly introduction, I guess you get that, you know, it's cheaper to order two if you're going to order Starbucks through DoorDash. Uh, the first part of that is the pro tip is that if you're traveling, don't waste your time going like wandering around and like sitting in places. I hate eating by myself. I hate like when I'm away from the house, I, 
I have my home routine. I like my home routine. I like like, okay, I get up in the mornings. I'll drive over to my local coffee shop. This little coffee shop around the corner from where I'm at. I order my coffee. Uh, if Avery doesn't go to school on Friday, so we're hanging out on Friday, she's going with me. We're sitting inside. It's like, it's like a blast. It's like a whole thing, right? It's just kind of the start of our day where I'm taking her to school and we're stopping and getting some coffee on the way to school. And so it works well there. But once I'm on the road, once I'm out there, once I'm hanging out with you guys, I'm out, you know, wandering around towns and doing all this stuff, usually in all the weird places that I end up. Weird and lovely. I mean that in the best possible sense of the, of the word. Just weird to me, strange to me, because some of these places I've never been, the last thing I want to do is go drive around in traffic looking for a Starbucks to then get there and find that it's got like a 45 minute long line. Uh, that's pretty brutal. It's <laughs> same thing, same thing with food. I'm going to go like find like some, some steak or something. And then I get there and I'm like, Oh, now I got to sit over here by myself. Or I'm going to sit at, I'm going to be the person at the bar. I've just always, I've traveled my entire life and I've always struggled with that. And once the, the advent of DoorDash came about, it saved me all of that awkwardness. Before we jump into today's episode, do me a favor. Head over to the website, www.thehopnerd.com. After all of that rant about cold rim, I'm going to have to hold on wait a second. Mm. Starbucks does have the best, the best cold brew. I mean, come on. Absolutely. I'm not like a Starbucks fan girl or anything, but like if you're going cold brew, it's it's the way to go. I've tried cold brew all over the country, and this is the one. I, I just can't find anything that has toppled it yet. And I try. I consistently try, and I just can't seem to find it. Head over to the website. Make sure you follow along on all things social media. All the stuff that we post, all the articles that we post, all the videos that we post, I take a good amount of time to create a lot of this content for you. I hope that you use it. That's the entire intent of this is take it. Use it on your hop journey. Share it within your organizations. If you appreciate the content, reshare it on social media. It helps us an absolute ton. Same thing with these podcast episodes or anything that you see us out there doing. Just a simple like, a simple share, a simple comment, just telling somebody about it, it helps us continue to bring you this message pretty much. I was going to say each and every week, but pretty much each and every week. It definitely inspires me to create more content and create more videos and create more resources. Those resources that I know that many of us, I know I didn't have when we first started on our hop journey way, 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 way back when and working internal to some organizations. Uh, it would have been lovely to have some of this stuff. So I'm trying to fill that void that I don't know that it's so much of a void anymore. It's great. It's great to see so much of this stuff out there. Uh, but at the time, I'm still constantly in the back of my mind going, I wish I had this when we started. I wish I had that when we started. I wish I had more of this video. It's it's just trying to be helpful. So if you like it, if you love it, if you got to have more, please like it, share it, interact with it, do all that kind of sort of stuff. And if you need a hand on your hop journey, please reach out to me, thehopnerd at gmail.com. wanted to talk a little bit about the output of learning teams, the output of learning teams. And I think we have to start maybe right here with the actual goal of learning teams. It's really easy to get confused or clouded around the true goal of learning teams, especially with uh, so many of our more traditional approaches to learning and improving uh, still existing in our organizations, and sometimes rightfully so. Some of those things, as we know, aren't horrific or terrible things. You know the story that I share with you all the time that I view so much of this stuff uh, really as benign, not good or evil, not great or bad or awesome or terrible, but it's really more about the uh, the beliefs, the assumptions that we, we we immerse those things in. You know, our, I hate to even use the culture word, but uh, those things, right? It, it's it's really that. I'm, I'm not so sure that an RC is a terrible thing if we're approaching it through the lens of human and organizational performance. I'm not so sure that a 5Y is just totally valueless. I just don't think it's all that magical. I don't think an RCA is all that magical. The part that I struggle with is that uh, with learning teams, we have that uh, less formal, less rigid framework that involves and empowers those nearest to the work, the issue, the event, to then 
teach us about that issue, event, pain point, or problem, and then co-create solutions, improvement opportunities, and ideas with us. And they take actions locally, kind of on their own, the stuff that they can just tweak and fix. And then all those folks that are on that learning team get to walk away with a little bit operationally smarter, having learned more from those that they've been on a learning team with, I'm not going to call that magic. I'm definitely not going to call that magic. But when we go, when we go back to that stick picture that uh, Todd has so famously shared quite a bit with us, with the community, we know that stick picture, right? You go towards the sharp end of work, you know, the pointy end, the coal face where work actually happens, right? And then you have the blunt end, you know, you move farther away from where work happens up and throughout our organizations and even out of our organizations into uh, those institutions or agencies that oftentimes regulate us. The farther we go up and out, the farther we go up towards that blunt end of that spectrum of that little scale thing, uh, the more authority and resources we'll usually find, but the less and less true knowledge of operational reality that we'll discover. The closer we get to the sharp end of that stick or arrow or sword, uh, I've seen many of these. That's a that's a, a, a down low shout out to one of my buddies out there that made the sword. I love the sword. As we get closer to that sharp end, we discover almost always less and less authority and resources, but more and more true knowledge of operational reality. It's not that uh, our leaders in our organization and or our employees have better or worse information. It's just different. It's different information. It's different perspectives. It's different operational realities within our organization. So I'm I'm bringing this back to the magic word. There's no such thing as magic. I I hope that I haven't ruined anyone's day by saying that today. There are no magic bullets. There are definitely no easy answers left within our work worlds. And if you think anything like I think, you probably think that there were never any easy answers to begin with. That's just like a fairy tale that we told ourselves. A nice little petty bed story with our warm fuzzy blanket that is all so easy. I don't think so. I don't think there are any easy answers life. It's all hard. They're all hard answers. <laughs> it just is. There's no such thing as magic. There are no magic bullets. But when we can bridge that gap, when we can bring those two unique operational realities together, when we can bring those two perspectives together and that varying amount of authority, influence, and resource, we can make some pretty magical feeling things happen. We can make some pretty phenomenal things happen. At the very least, around here, we tend to call that the magic sauce. And I tend to lean into learning teams because they have been the best mechanism that I have used, that I have discovered to allow us to bridge that gap, to bring those unique information sets together and to bridge, to, 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 to couple operational reality with authority and resources within our organizations that allows us to get some real shit done, to come up with some real and realistic opportunities uh, for improvement and some real and realistic ideas for improvement. So side rant about learning teams over. I just felt that there was a really good uh, opportunity, I guess, a little opportunity. If I see the opportunity, I have to seize it. I have to throw that in there. I don't think any of our learning tools are good or like necessarily bad or uh, it's some probably better than others for Sure, but it all starts with those underlying beliefs and assumptions. And let's talk a little bit about that with learning teams. I think that's where we have to start with this true goal. What is the goal of a learning team? The goal of a learning team is to learn more about normal work. I was going to put a dramatic pause in here, but you can hear probably the airplanes rumbling overhead. I live right next door to Luke Air Force Base, so what you're getting is the sounds of freedom. <laughs> it's cool to look out the window and see them doing like they're like fake dogfighters, which is what I'm seeing right now. I don't know what this fighter jet is. I'm assuming it's an F something. I, I, I don't know, uh, but there's like five of them chasing each other, and it's it's an awesome sight. But it does interrupt the dramatic pause a little bit. So if you're ever wondering when you're listening to the pod about that, kind of, that's, that's totally what that is. That is the sound of freedom radiating from Luke Air Force Base here in Litchfield Park, Arizona. But the goal of a learning team is to learn. <laughs> that's it. Notice, notice that I said to learn. And I'll throw in normal work, but to learn, period. I didn't say to fix I didn't say to improve. Now you're going to get the dogs barking. (laughs) I didn't say to generate a 32-page report out. I didn't say 
to come up with a 47-page slide deck that goes to the Executive Safety Committee. I didn't say that it's 32 corrective actions and a bunch of fixes and a ton of improvement. I didn't say any of that. In fact, what I said was the goal of a learning team is to learn, to learn more about normal work. That's the goal. Within learning teams, within operational learning, broadly speaking, I would say within human and organizational performance, and I'll take that even farther and just say with these better beliefs and assumptions, we value and prioritize the act of learning. We value it. We prioritize it. And where I'm going with learning teams and operational learning, we value it, we prioritize it, and we prioritize it over over the act of fixing or improving. We do this because we know that we as people have a strong desire to fix. Not a bad desire, but if we see something broken, we want to pick it up and fix it. If we see something that's in need of fixing, we like fixing stuff. That's that's peopley stuff. That's what we do. And that's a pretty good thing most of the time. We like to leave things better than how we found it. If it's broken most of the time, if it's within my ability to fix it, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to tinker with it. And uh, at least I think I'm going to fix it. I might make it way worse, but I'm going to try or I might break it more, uh, but I'm going to try. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. But we recognize that we as people have this strong desire to fix it so much so that sometimes we do a whole bunch of fixing and we neglect the learning part. We get real fast to fixing and we don't take enough time to learn deeply. We also recognize that the more that we learn, the better our improvement strategies will be. So we value and prioritize the act of learning over fixing and improving. The goal of a learning team is to learn, period. Now, will you almost always discover opportunities for improvement? Yeah, most of the time, uh, at least a good chunk of the time, you'll find pain points, problems, issues, frustrations. You'll find good stuff that we want to continue make happening. Great stuff that we want to not only continue make happening, but grow. We'll find that stuff. We'll find opportunities for action most of the time. But if a learning team doesn't result in four ideas for improvement and improvement opportunities and ideas for improvement, and it doesn't result in 32 corrective actions or that 47-page report out or that super fancy, that super fancy PowerPoint slides that's not really PowerPoint slides, the stuff that we made in Canva because it looks super, super slick and sexy just because it doesn't result in all that stuff. If we have a learning team that, that results in no improvement actions, does that mean it was a shitty learning team? I don't think so. We value and prioritize the act of learning. We know that when we learn, even if it doesn't result in 47 corrective actions, that we're still knowing more. That this act of learning and knowing more about operational reality still makes our organizations operationally smarter. So with that out of the way, Let's talk about a few of the typical outputs that you'll see from learning teams. The first one being, ding, 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 you guessed it, winner. It's an understanding of normal work. (laughs) Really, it's a bit of a better understanding about normal work. That's the first output of a learning team. This story of normal work, the great, the good, the bad, the ugly, the sometimes scary, the sometimes weird information about how work normally gets done within our organizations. It's the story of normal work, warts and all, so we can learn and improve together. Now, We value and prioritize the act of learning. That's our first output. Now, likely, as we said, you almost always, typically, I'll just say typically, you discover opportunities to improve, opportunities for, uh, you know, to make things a little bit better. That's our next output, opportunities for improvement. The good, 
right? The stuff that is already happening that's really good or great, and we want to make sure that stuff keeps happening, and we want to spread that stuff around sometimes as much as we can if it's that great stuff. You know, lessons, uh, this kind of lessons learned, best practices kind of stuff. We, we want to make sure that we're sharing that. You know, the bad, the stuff that we need to improve, and the ugly, the stuff that kills and man's people, the stuff that we need to control, we discover these opportunities where we need to improve. The third part of this is, uh, you probably guessed it, again, ding, 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 ding. Ideas for improvement. These ideas that we co-create with those nearest to the work. These can be at, at the crew level. These can be at the department level. These can be stuff sometimes that we look at through the entire organization. But it's actual co-created ideas, strategies to make things a bit better. So that's what we're really looking at. First and foremost, and always, we want to gain an understanding of normal work. From this better understanding of normal work, from seeking to understand operational reality, we discover typically areas for improvement, opportunities for improvement. Through this seeking to understand operational reality and discovering these opportunities for improvement, we then go down the path of our final output, as we said, co-creating these improvement strategies with those nearest to the work. So three primary things there, with the first being really the only one in my book that's truly required to be a learning team, to call something a learning team. And as we said, it is this understanding of normal, this understanding of normal work. It's learning. From this learning, we usually will discover opportunities where we need to get better at something. We need to make stuff more air tolerant, a little more resilient. We need to, uh, you know, just make things a little bit easier and, and on. Or we find that scary stuff, that that uncontrolled energy source, that's something out there that eats people, that maims, hurts, kills people, that can result in catastrophic outcomes. And we need to do uh, some work around controlling that or, or, or on, right? You get, you get the whole point here. Again, the primary goal of a learning team is to learn more about normal work. That's it. That's it. That's that's really that's really it. I promise you. That that's it. We almost always have those two other things come alongside that because we find opportunities to improve. Yeah, of course. And when we do, yeah, of course. We're going to co-create improvement ideas, improvement strategies. We're going to make things a bit better. But the goal of a learning team and the primary output of a learning team, it's learning and a better understanding of normal work because within learning teams, within operational and within human and organizational performance, we value and prioritize the act of learning above fixing or improving because we know without the act of learning, all of our air quotes here, fixes and improvements, they're going to fall flat anyways. And a lot of times they're just going to make things far worse. They might make us feel real good, like we did a bunch and it might look like we did a bunch, but maybe without that act of learning, we just left things far, far for listening everybody we greatly appreciate all of your support of the hot nerd podcast the hot nerd llc if you need a little bit of help of bringing human and organizational performance to life if you would like to take your efforts around learning and improving to the next level yep i can help with that head over to www.thehotnerd.com or send me an email thehotnerd at gmail.com until next time bye everybody bye
This is not a test. This is not a test. Welcome to a secret episode of the Hop Nerd Podcast. This is not a test. This is not a test. Welcome to a secret episode of the Hop Nerd Podcast. Here's your host, Sam Goodman. episode of the super duper secret podcast club here on the hop nerd podcast i'm pumped that you found this you were looking right you seen like this podcast is uh way too long like why is it like 60 minutes long when he only talks for like i was gonna say 15 minutes but let's be real you guys know i, I, I talk for way more than 15 minutes usually 15 minutes only if i'm in a super duper rush but welcome 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 to the super duper secret podcast club if this is your first time joining us, welcome. You are now officially a member of this super duper secret podcast club. Just by discovering this, you're now in on the secret. You just have to know the rule, the one and only rule, and that's that we do not speak of the super duper secret podcast club. The other side to this whole uh, get together thing here, our little super duper secret clandestine group of, of folks here in our little uh, hump community, the, you know, in the, the in the know kind of crowd is that you need to head over to the hopnerd.com slash secret. It's not required. It's not required. You are in the club, but you can officially like super duper officially join the club by going to the hopnerd.com slash secret, providing a little bit of uh, information. It, it helps with a couple things. Uh, first off, it lets me know who's out there and uh, listening, which is kind of cool. And more importantly for you is a part of your membership includes getting random crap in the mail for me from time to time, just whenever I feel like doing it. It's just kind of something I love to do. So you might get some super duper secret podcast club merch, a t-shirt, a hat. You might get a book, maybe uh, not mine. It could just be random books that I'm reading, safety or otherwise. Who knows? You might get a freaking fruit basket <laughs> for all that you know. So you call, you know, you're out working. We're out doing our stuff. We know how this goes. We're, 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 we're out there all day sweating and grinding, doing whatever it is that we do. We finally get home and there's a package and it's like Christmas morning, right? I love that. And then you look at it and you go, I didn't, I don't remember ordering anything from Amazon. The 47 things I ordered from Amazon have already arrived and the 47 other things that I've ordered aren't here until next week. What is this? And you open it up. And it's from the Super Duper Secret Podcast Club. How cool is that? So make sure if you're interested in that sort of thing and you want to join this whole shindig officially, thehopnerd.com slash secret. So what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about today is uh, starting points for pre-event operational learning. And it sounds like I'm reading that because I kind of sort of am because I wrote a blog post over at thehopnerd.com slash blog. I think that's what it is. You just click the blog button and you can find it. It's it's really easy. I've pumped out a couple articles over there over the past little bit, a um, little bit more longer format kind of stuff and trying to throw in some videos and stuff into them. This one isn't that long, but this is one of several I ri- I've written, wrote. I've written one called Growing Hop. So if you're interested in kind of what that journey looks like and has some stories, some ideas, some thoughts, a bit of framework around what that looks like growing hop while working internal to an organization, you can go check that out as well. And definitely go check out starting points for pre-event learning. And the whole idea here, it's a question that I get a bunch, is, uh, is this. And let me maybe tee this up a little bit. And, and and this is just kind of what I hear, and this is what I've experienced working internal to organizations. See if this resonates resonates a bit resonates <laughs> resonates a bit with you. I know it doesn't sound like I'm podcast. It doesn't sound like I talk uh, a lot for a living, but I promise I do. I do. I'm just jacked up on cold brew, and that's kind of early in the morning. So if some of the words come out a little bit wonky or weird, I apologize. I, I know you know what I mean. <laughs> So, but see if this resonates with you a bit. In most of our organizations, 
We do a pretty good job. I was going to kind of venture towards great. I don't know if I would call it great, but we do a pretty good job. We put a lot of effort, a lot of aggressive effort, really, into learning after we have an event. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's getting there, right? We're pretty good at that. We at least aggressively pursue that. After an operational surprise occurs, after something catches on fire, after something blows up, you know, after things go real, 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 real wrong, or almost, usually almost really, 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 really wrong, after somebody gets hurt, after we have that big quality surprise, that big quality escape, and, and on and on. You get where I'm going. An unintended operational surprise, something that's a bit surprising, a bit disappointing, it catches us off guard, or, you know, something goes wrong, or, or nearly goes wrong enough to catch our attention. We do a pretty good job. We have a lot of crap in place, mechanisms uh, for such events. We have formal incident investigation procedures. You shall do this and that and this and that and this and that. Here's a formal investigation procedure uh, checklist. It's on attachment 17. I'll drink my cold brew. On the back of the procedure, attachment 16 is the 47-page form that goes along with this, where you're going to ask the who, what's the what's the where, the, the, the whys, and you're going to ask that why five times, because five whys in, in a sequence is a magical, it yields magical results. But if it's this bad, then you're not only going to do that and ask those five whys, but then you go to this part of the process where we're going to do this RCA, and that RCA has to be done in like 12 and a half days, exactly 12 and a half days, and then it has to go to director approval, and then vice president approval, and then the CEO is going to rubber stamp it as long as they agree with everything that you discover. And if they don't like it, then they're going to change. <sighs> we do an okay job. That's why I said, well, I'm not going to call it great, but we at least go after that learning. We, we go after it. We go after that learning. We have every post-event analysis tool, post-event something under the sun. And as I said, we even ask why five magical times sometimes, right? Now, you know me, you know I'm going to tell you that I typically prefer the use of learning teams. I'm not here to beat up on root cause analysis or even the 5Y process. I like to poke fun of these things. It's just who I am. It's just part of my, my inner being. I like to poke at these things, these things that we typically hold sacred. I operate under this premise that if it's so sacred that we can't make fun of it, we've got some much deeper and much more serious problems. <laughs> Absolutely, right? Absolutely. I typically prefer the use of learning teams to use to learn post-operational surprise. But even in more um, forward-thinking, uh, mature organizations, organizations that use things like learning teams, organizations that are hop-focused, or we'll just say on focused on doing things a bit differently, doing things a bit better, we still seem to struggle with pre-event, pre-surprise, pre-injury learning. Now, I think some of it's this, and I'm not going down this predict and prevent path. You know kind of my stance on some of that safety fortune-telling, just the fact that I'm calling it safety fortune-telling. If you don't know my stance on it, that kind of gives you some clues as to where I'm at. I explore that in uh, much deeper detail in uh, 10 Ideas, in the 10 Ideas to Make Safety Suck Less book, and I actually talk about outgrowing this desire to do this safety fortune telling predict and prevent everything that's that's not where i'm going with this because some of the problem is is this yeah like if we knew an event was going to happen for sure then 100 we would be doing pre-event learning but the problem is is that we suck at predicting things <laughs> As people, we suck. We suck at it. We are not good at predicting things. As much as people in the big data space are going to tell you, but we can. We can do it with this much accuracy. The same people in this big data space were predicting that uh, as we went towards the 2008 Great Recession, that it was going to be the most epic, best financial year ever. Like ever. Like it was going to be the best because the data was telling us it's going to be the best. And it wasn't, right? We lived through that. <laughs> we, we know that it wasn't. I'm, again, I'm not bashing our big data friends. I think data is important. I think information is important. But we suck at predicting things. Let, let's just start there. We suck at predicting things because we're looking for this obvious signal. Aha, a trend. There is where our next failure is going to occur. And in our crazy, wild, and complex, and often complicated work worlds, that's rarely how things play out, right? It's just, it's just super rare. It just almost never plays out like that. It's obvious after the fact, right? We can see, well, step A led to step B led to 
step this and then it's seven and a half and then Z and then Q and then we can piece all that together. Everything's obvious after the fact with the gift of hindsight. My intent is not to rant on predict and prevent. It's just to highlight this point that we're terrible at predicting things. And I think that's part of this. Right? And I don't think the solution is getting better at predicting and preventing. Let, let's maybe go down this path a little bit. Pre-event learning opportunities aren't as visible or apparent as their post-event counterparts. It's this faint signals, loud signals thing that we talk a little bit about, right? We, we know this conversation, faint signals, loud signals. These faint signals being more of whispers of failure in motion, things that haven't gone wrong but are actively going wrong, and loud signals being the boom, kapow, blood, the guts, the fire, the things that have gone wrong, right? I think if we really want to get better at pre-event learning, we need to gravitate towards those faint whispers, those faint whispers, things that we have kind of shrugged off maybe a bit in the past as not as important, as not as meaningful because there wasn't some big gnarly outcome. You know, we know those faint signals, faint signals that often sound like pain points, faint signals that often sound like frustrations, faint signals that sound like, hey, yeah, you know, that thing, when I get near it, it makes the uh, hair on my arm stand up a little bit. That thing gives me the heebie-jeebies. That thing's way too hard to, it really sucks when I have to. It's really dumb that we, you know, when we do this, it's way outside of our norm. This thing over here, it gets wild, it gets crazy. That thing over there almost caught on fire last week and this and that and this and that and on and on and on and on. We've not really viewed those with the same level of urgency, with the same level of importance around learning as we have, well, this went wrong, so now we need to learn more. Pre-event learning opportunities are not as visible or apparent as their post-event counterparts. It's easy to see where we should have learned after something that's surprising and disappointing occurs. It's easy to see where we should have learned and improved usually once these faint signals have grown loud. I think we need to lean into those faint signals. We talk about these faint signals, especially from the stance of pain points, this viewpoint of pain points. And I really like these kind of basic operational learning prompts, these better questions, these starting points, if you will. I promise this isn't a conversation to sell you on the cards, but the cards are available if you're interested in uh, getting a handy dandy card deck for you to use or your leaders to use or anything like that. A lot of people have been reaching out to me about the starting points journals that are available over on Amazon. I think it's called Starting Points, an Operationally Curious Learning Journal. It is available on Amazon. We've tried to price these things as low as we possibly can. Same things with the cards. I know the card prices are freaking high, man. I'm trying to get them lower. I'm trying to figure out how we uh, do that without me having to turn my living room into a warehouse. Uh, you know, that's, I can't. I will get in serious, serious trouble uh, with Jarrell and Avery if I turn our house into a warehouse. So I'm trying my best with some print-on-demand stuff. We'll, we'll tweak that as we go. But they all work pretty well for you. So check those things out if that's something that you're interested in. And we have some guides on better operationally curious questions, these starting points over on the hopnerd.com under resources, I believe. And in that article I was telling you about, you can download a kind of a really quick high-level guide of those. But the questions that I kind of gravitate towards to kind of under undercover, <laughs> to uncover some of these pre-event learning starting points is stuff that sounds like, teach me about your normal work. Show me where things are harder than they should be. What's something that we do that's really easy to get it wrong and really hard to get it right? Where is it it's really easy to make a mistake? Around our areas of critical risk in particular, where are we overly operator dependent? Now, that's a fancy pants way of saying around our areas of critical risk, where do we depend on people to get it 100% right 100% of the time for really bad things not to happen? That's, that's what I mean by it, right? <clears throat> I'm dying over here, but that's, that's what I mean. Where do the rules make little to no sense? Where do the rules make it way too hard to do the job and we have to bend or break them or adapt our way around them to get normal work done? Where are things nearing failure? Where is the next event going to occur? That, those are great starting points. And, and maybe you pull out that little scrap of paper or your little handy-dandy journal book or a little index card or a post-it note and maybe you write down some of your thought on those things. That's an immediate starting point for you. If you do that, let's pause. 
Let's pause right here. Let's pause for just a second. And I want you to pull off that scrap of paper and I want you to write this down. Where is it far too easy to make a mistake? Where is it really easy to get things wrong? Where is it really hard to get those things right? From your perspective, from your vantage point in your organization, from the stuff that you see with the, the, the stuff that you see, the stuff that you deal with, the stuff that you encounter on a daily basis, where is that next operational surprise going to occur within your organization? And don't just think safety. That's that's way too limiting. That's way too limiting to keep this in the safety space. Yeah, it could be that, yeah, that thing over there is going to eat Bob if we don't do something about it. But it could sound a whole bunch more like if we don't get a spare part for that thing, that thing's pretty critical to us. We don't have any critical spares. And if we don't have a critical spare and that thing breaks we're screwed. Like we're, we're done. We're done for like six months and we might go out of business. It could be that. And let's, let's pause. Let's pause. And I want you to, to write those things down. Put a little bit of thought into those. Okay. You got it. Starting points. Those are starting points. At the very least, they're great opportunities to go out and learn more. Uh, you wrote them down. Uh, you wrote them down. Uh, you're at the very least kind of curious about it, or, or, or dare I say even a, a bit worried about those areas. It's a great opportunity to at least go have an operationally curious conversation to ask some of those questions around those particular things to the folks that work with, on, around, mess with those things every single day. It might be a great opportunity to go do a pre-event learning team to go and do pre-event operational learning. You see what I'm doing here, right? You see where I'm going with this. Obviously, obviously, because I just asked you, I want you to scribble out your thoughts on these. Obviously, I want to encourage you to think up even better, more interesting questions that lead you towards starting points for pre-event learning. But most and important of all, I don't want you to stop there. That would defeat the purpose. I don't want you to stop with only your thoughts and your assumptions, your ideas. I want you to go learn more from those nears to that work. Uh, these are just a place to start to get your mind thinking in that direction of places to go learn more about, to go do a bit of a learning exploration, if you will. We just published an article over on the website. Again, just trying to get more free resources out there, some framework out there around not only learning teams, but what we do around learning explorations. It's a good opportunity to go explore and learn more. We know this because operational reality lives nearest to the work. So that's where you need to go. Go learn from those nearest to the work. Be curious and explore. Okay, so you've got some ideas. You've got some starting points. You know you need to go have some operationally curious conversations. Do some learning explorations. Maybe do some more formalized learning teams. Uh, this is a great way to start to think of pre-event operational learning opportunities. But... Here's where I'm going next. We have to deliberately expand our learning efforts. We talked about this bias that we have towards learning post-event and almost exclusively post-event. We seem to get stuck on outcome severity or potential severity in particular. We almost exclusively focus our learning efforts on unintended operational surprises after something bad, after something not great, after something shitty happens or after something shitty nearly happens. Those are duh. Like, I don't want to call them free spaces, but we know we need to learn there. We know that those are apparent. As we said, they become obvious after the fact. So we have to think beyond them. Of course, we'll learn after that next injury. Of course, we'll learn after that equipment fails or it catches on fire. Of course, of course, of course, of course. As we said, these are loud and obvious points for deeper learning. But there's so many more places to start, as we just talked about. We, you, you just thought some up. You just found some just by taking a few minutes to think through it. Pain points, problems, migraine generators, interesting successes, the great stuff that we're doing, the wild stuff that's going on, the stuff that's different, the stuff that's weird. We know. We, we know that. It expands so much farther. We have to deliberately expand our thinking beyond that. Rather than pouring all of our time and resources into exclusively learning about more, learning more about these anomalies, and events are anomalies, right? They, they truly are in our work worlds. And we know this because work normally goes pretty great. At the very least, it normally goes pr pretty good. Pre-event learning moves us towards seeking to understand more about normal, 
everyday, usually successful work. We're really learning more about how work usually goes well and how it occasionally goes wrong. And we're doing that deliberately rather than just learning after something goes wrong, after something not great happens, after something shitty happens. Now, lastly, this is a really important part, and I'm saving it for the last. (laughs) That's why I said lastly. Duh, right? You you with me? You with me? You got me. I want to leave you with this thought. It's around prioritizing pre-event operational learning. We have to value it, and we have to prioritize it just as much, and in my opinion, we probably need to prioritize it maybe more than we prioritize post-event learning. If we want it to actually happen, we have to value it, and we have to prioritize it because we know how this plays out. Well, yeah, that's a frustration, but there's nothing we can do about that. You know, that's just how that goes. That's uh, nope, nope, no, no need to do a learning team. No, and that, uh, yeah, well, I know that they're struggling with it, but nothing's gone wrong. So why do we need to go? Why would we need to go learn more? Yeah, I know that it kind of got close, but it's no big deal. I mean, there's no sense in pulling people off the line and taking people away from production to go be curious and learn more about it. Wow, what's going to cost us some... We we don't say that about crap that we value. If we value pre-event learning, we will prioritize it. So that's... You get where I'm going. We have to value it. We have to prioritize it. And we have to demonstrate that. We demonstrate that by giving people the time, the space, the ability to and the authority to operationally learn pre-event. Give people room in their work to be curious, to operationally learn pre-event, and they're likely to do just that. This has been the Hop Nerd Super Duper Secret Podcast. Thank you for being a member. Be sure to visit thehopnerd.com slash secret and sign up for a chance to receive super secret merch, books, and more. And don't forget, the only rule of the Super Duper Secret Podcast Club. We do not speak of the Super Duper Secret Podcast Club. Goodbye.